Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I had a little bit of a, a dressing brain fog blooper the other day that I only realised when I got undressed at night to go to bed. Trousers on back to front again? <laughs> Almost. Might as well have been. So I took my watch off, took my blouse off, took a second watch off. Oh, Trish. I've been wearing two watches all day and I hadn't even realised. What, one on each arm or one on the same arm? Both on the same arm. I think because I had a fairly sort of like tight wrist, you know, the wrist of the blouse. And so one was sort of tucked up under the, the blouse and the other one was sort of floating more below the... Two watches on the wrist. Do you know what's happened? Because normally, because you've got such delicate little wrists, I wouldn't have thought you'd been able to lift them with two watches on. Little birdie, birdie wrists, yes. It's because you've been doing your weight training. You can now wear two watches. Why don't you try three tomorrow, Trish? Okay, I will. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hot house, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. So I thought I'd start this week's show, Lorraine, by bigging you up, blowing your trumpet, singing your praises, but obviously not literally singing. There is none required. Carry on. How are you singing my praises? Why are we talking about me? Not that I'm going to complain. You are doing something incredibly brave or incredibly stupid, whichever way you want to look at it. You've signed up for... I think it might be one of the biggest outdoor swimming challenges it's possible to do in the British Isles. Do tell our lovely listeners all about it. Well, now you've said it, I have to do it, don't I? (laughs) You definitely have to do it. That's made it happen, hasn't it? I am doing the Silly Island Swim Challenge with SwimQuest. I will be documenting this on Instagram for anyone who wants to follow me. It's 15 kilometres, two days of swimming six swims and you walk between the islands between the swims one of the swims is around 5k that will be the furthest i've ever swum certainly the furthest i've ever swum at sea um i have heard horror stories and happy stories about this event it's not a race but it's not a kind of recreational swim you do have to be fit you have to have trained i somebody told me that uh, 150 people started it in one year and only 40 finished <laughs> wow oh my gosh <laughs> uh, that was weather conditions though yeah. um, that caused that i am a little bit worried i'm sort of more worried trish a about the food because the food will worry me and b about walking in my wetsuit because you know i'm not a keen swimmer in a wetsuit chafing a lot of chafing. So you swim to an island, then walk across to the other side of it, and then you swim to another island. Yes. Oh, my God. I know. So And then they take you back at the end of the day on the ferry to your where you're staying, and then they take you back to the island the next day, and you, you keep going. It's the big, long swim that I'm worried about because it is deep and it is in proper waves and everything. Oh, gosh. But they'll look after you, the Swim Quest people. Are we sponsoring you? Yes, I might do it for Level Water, who I swam late, we swam Lake Geneva uh, for. They raise money for kids that uh, can't afford swimming lessons. Oh, nice. That's a really good one. Well, um, you are making me feel very inferior because I haven't really landed on a challenge yet for this year. I mean, you know me, I like to add something to my repertoire, trying new things each year. In need of some ideas. But the other thing, I probably need a bit of a shove out of my comfort zone. There's a lot of the things I think I might do, I talk myself out of. You overthink stuff, mm, Trish, and that yeah. stops you in your tracks. But listen, I heard about the Challenge Hub from um, lovely Kate Redshaw, who's a listener. She's on our uh, Facebook page as well. She's super helpful. She came to our live show last year. 
And she recommended that to us. And I think it's a really great idea because it's D of E, Duke of Edinburgh, for the over 55s. You just register with them, complete learning, physical and volunteering challenges and activities, and you're given points which add up to bronze, silver, gold. You will like that, Trish. You like a, I know. You like a little medal. You know, we've all talked about this, haven't we, with our kids. And don't forget that we've also taken something else on this year, so this will take you out of your comfort zone anyway. We have organised our first retreat, haven't we, Trish? Yes, Not that we're going to make them swim around the Silly Islands no. or anything like that. It's going to be much more relaxing. No, we were in that lovely pool at the Samaritz Hotel in Cornwall. Yes. But um, yeah, there's just a couple of weeks to go. We do have a few places left if anyone is still thinking they'd like to join us at the Samaritz Hotel on the 15th to 17th of March. All the details will be coming up a little sort of ad burst later in the show and you can pop onto the Samaritz website or any of our socials for more info too. Yes, and you can come solo. That's a question we get asked a lot. Come solo because we are there. We'll be your friends. We'll look after you. Take you on a friendship walk. Right then, brown owl, as I like to call you, because once you get involved in an endeavour, it is a bit like following (laughs) brown owl somewhere. I think all of what we're doing will pale into insignificance with our guests on the show today. We've got Rebecca Openshaw-Rowe and Georgina Gilbert, who are better known as the Antarctic Fire Angels. They describe themselves as ordinary women doing extraordinary things, which is a little bit of an understatement because they basically skied a route that no one has ever skied before across the continent to the South Pole. Quite extraordinary. And today, our How to Win section of the show, which comes after the interview, is about knowing ourselves better through the Gen X medium of quizzes. They were the bread and butter of our magazine days. In fact, my whole career started with a quiz, Trish. You know, the first thing I covered in the Cornish Times was the how many things can you get into a matchbox competition. (laughs) Competitions and quizzes. And then I remember moving to Cosmo where I was editor-in-chief and we would do uh, Are You Bridget or Shazza? Oh, yes. Love those. Yes. But this quiz that we're doing today is much more serious and I think you'll all benefit from working out exactly where you fit once you've done the quiz because it'll be really helpful in your midlife journey. Yes, I thought it was really helpful and insightful. It's a good reminder that if you keep hold of kind of who you are and what you really love, then put yourself out there, brilliant things can happen. I mean, here's a great example from Charlie on the Facebook group who posted this message. She says, last November, I was really struggling. My fledging business was struggling. I was starting aggressive meds for osteoporosis and a significant relationship came sadly to an end. Feeling hopeless and like I had nothing to look forward to, I gave in to my friend's persuasion to join a comedy theatre group. I hadn't performed for years, but I was cast in three sketches, met a load of lovely, interesting and fun new people and have something to look forward to every week. And when we perform at the end of the month. Has anyone else taken up a hobby that's turned their mood around? If not, I can tell you it's worked for me. And I love this little PS from Charlie. She says, amusingly, one of the sketches I'm in is about accidentally going on a blind date with my ex-husband of 25 years. Trish, maybe you should do that. Go on the comedy circuit. Oh, yes. You could do getting dressed with Trish. Batch cocking with Trish. Yes, I like that. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that story, Charlie. It's really great to hear from our listeners on our private Facebook group. We'd love to hear from anyone else who's taken up a fab new hobby or resurrected an old one. Just contact us in the usual ways. You can go to the Facebook group, which is the same name as the podcast, or you can email us hello at postcardsfrommidlife.co.uk, or you can find us on Instagram. Are you going to be resurrecting your Kung Fu practice anytime soon? Do you remember that, Trish, all that Kung Fu? Yes, for my teen years. That didn't last long. Get yourself a shop put model. Shop put model? Shop put medal like you had? Shop put medal. Well, I've already got one of those. I don't need another one. What about you, resurrecting an old hobby? Guinea pig breeding? We've heard about your guinea pigs. Was it donkeys? Can I tell you, I used to um, collect interesting rocks. (laughs) I did. Were they your friends? My mum was absolutely furious because I used to put them on on the windowsill because we lived on the Bodmin Moor, so I would collect rocks, tin mines, bits of gold, all that, and then I would try and identify them. This was when I thought I might have some kind of academic brain, which was obviously proven dramatically not to be so during my actual exams. So, yeah, I used to collect little rocks, Trish. What do you think about that, eh? Well, that's a new little uh, resurrect that one. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) But listen, we're about to meet the Antarctic Fire Angels. But if you, like us, have been hooked on the Netflix series one day, do stay tuned for Nostalgia Noodle at the end of the show because we're going to be chatting about that in an 80s, 90s noodle fest. We couldn't not talk about one day, could we? I mean, it would have been extremely 
remiss of us. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Sometimes remembering to wear matching shoes or how to reverse park is enough of a challenge in midlife. But in between those brain fog moments during our often overwhelming perimenopause days, midlife women sometimes get the glimmer of an urge to take on something new, something that reminds us how powerful we are as we age. On this podcast, Trish and I have met a stream of amazing midlife women who've done extraordinary, brave and challenging things after the age of 40. In fact, it's not unusual. Older women are unstoppable, and it's been a pleasure for us to share their stories, which is why we are extremely excited to welcome two Welsh firefighters to the show today, whose midlife challenge took them to the bottom of the earth to complete a historic journey that they say they tackled simply because they wanted to show the world what women are capable of. It's time to meet the Antarctic Fire Angels, Georgina Gilbert, 49, and Rebecca Openshaw Rowe, 42. Setting off in November 2023, the duo walked and skied more than 745 miles in 52 days in temperatures as low as minus 41 from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole unaided. The pair, who are frontline firefighters, had never skied before they started training and fundraising for this epic journey four years ago. Obviously, we'll be asking them the nitty-gritty of how they dealt with deadly winter conditions, injury, hot flushes, lack of sleep, extreme weight loss, and life in the freezer, sharing a two-person tent every night. But more importantly, we'll be asking them for advice on the endurance mindset required to accomplish such a feat, and how they put what they learnt on the ice about patience, tolerance and friendship into their lives back home. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Bex and George. First, I want to say congratulations, because, oh my God, what a thing you have done, and how amazing to do it and how inspiring for young women, all women actually, uh, everybody. Can you start by telling us how you met and what kind of friendship you have? Because you didn't know each other before you did this trip, did you? Um, I don't think Trish and I, and we've known each other 30 years, would last more than five minutes in a tent together because she doesn't like rustling and I'm really untidy. So it would be end of our friendship. So <laughs> George, tell us how you met. And Bex, tell us a little bit about the kind of friendship you have. Uh, we didn't officially meet where the concept was born, really. So it was at a, a Women in the Fire Service conference in Morton on the the Fire Service College. And um, we didn't know each other there, although we were both there at the same conference at the same time. And um, it wasn't until maybe a week afterwards when the feelers went out to uh, recruit a team of female firefighters to uh, traverse Antarctica that Bex cannonballed into my life. <laughs> you call her a baby hippo in, in one of the things I saw. And it's... Cannonball's a new one, actually. I'm just trying to think of something, somebody somebody that comes like a baby hippo that comes bounding into your life kind of thing, and a cannonball came into my head. Yeah, so we've known each other for nearly five years now, but at the start of the expedition, it was just over four years that we'd known each other, so not um, a large space of time at all. <laughs> cannonball, that is a new one. I'll take it, though. George and I's friendship we're we're like sisters really i think we certainly bicker or snip at each other is is what we we call it and um uh, you know over the last 4 years i think we've we've got to the point where we're able to you know have a little snip at each other and we just brush it off then and carry on you know which has probably helped the saving our friendship really when we were on expedition because it was such an intense environment and it's just the two of us in that tiny tent you know for the 52 53 days I think if we weren't able to just have that little outburst, you know, every now and again, I think we would have really been harboring a lot of stress and um, angst otherwise. And it probably would have, you know, manifested in a in a one almighty big bust up. So um, I think that really helped that we have that friendship where we're able to kind of say what we think a little and um, and not get too het up on what the other one is saying, you know. And, you know, obviously we get a little bit frustrated and angry, but we're able to kind of deal with it quickly and, and let it go I think but um, we also have great fun I think George and I have got very similar um, humour and we really do have great fun as well together and I think that's really obviously helped us with our friendship and being out on our expedition as well you know we find we find um, humour and fun in the strangest of things actually and talk about the most randomest things sometimes um, but that really kept us going I think and obviously both being firefighters with similar interests you know obviously that really has helped our friendship as well yeah, we, I'd say we're like bickering sisters a lot of the time, myself and George. 
Sounds familiar, Lorraine. <laughs> Maybe we could share a tent after all. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, when you think about what you've achieved, obviously one of the main things that comes to mind is the physical endurance and how fit you must both be. Um, George, you, you've been a firefighter for over 26 years. You're a triathlete. You're a mountaineer. So we know you're fit. But we read that you said that you thought being older made the journey and the training easier. You make me sound like so glorious in my achievements. Glorious. <laughs> when you put them all together, you're like, well, well you're going to listen to Bex's achievements and then my pale into insignificance. But it, it being uh, just a, an older generation does help with it because you've got a bit of that life balance behind you. And I, I felt I was able to apply some life experience to the whole of the expedition, you know, from from dot from the four from concept through to the end. Really, I think when you're older, you have more uh, experience with confrontation, with uh, managing things and people and and stuff like that. And I think you see the ending for the everything's for the greater good in the end, and you have to put you, your own stuff aside. And having that life experience behind you, I think, allows you to do that um, a bit more naturally. And also, if you've got a background, uh, I found it helpful having a background of doing active things because you build that resilience within your body and your mind. And if you know your physical boundaries already, then, I mean, I've actually scared myself how much I'm willing to put myself through. And that was before the expedition. I randomly went and did a marathon for charity when I'd never run a marathon before. And I went, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. Don't worry. And I actually scared myself how much pain I was willing to put myself through. And I got to the end of it and I thought, please remind me of that pain next time I say I've got to go and do something. But it's about knowing what your boundaries are. And I think you that gets more installed in you as as you get older as well, definitely. Yeah, it gives you confidence, doesn't it? But Bex, you were a PE teacher and you became a firefighter at 36 because you couldn't continue with competitive sport. Your sport CV is extraordinary. You've been a team GB rower. You played in the Rugby World Cup. You're a, a surf life-saving champion, record holder. But injury stopped your career. So I'm assuming, I mean, you became a firefighter, so you found something amazing to do. But you must have developed some really great coping strategies when your whole identity changed at that point. It definitely did, yeah. I certainly struggled when I stopped well had to retire from doing international sport and um, that lack of identity was a really big thing for me and I really did feel like I was just wandering in the wilderness really not really knowing who I was you know but for what 25-30 years you know I'd been known as this athlete and then suddenly I wasn't that person anymore and you know I'd grown up basically that's all I'd known so um, it did take me quite a while to kind of find myself again, I think, and, and be happy with just me and not being having this, you know, being this athlete, just being like at the actual person I was. A lot of soul searching, I think, talk, speaking to people, realising that um, people loved and respected me for me, not for what I'd achieved and what I had done. And I think that was a big thing for me. And then certainly on the expedition, I think just having that mental resilience and being sort of happy with who I was as well and confident in who I, who I was. Um, certainly helped on those 53 days you know when you were when you had huge doubts some days about am I going to be able to continue this for the 52 53 days I certainly had a lot of pains uh, there were some days where I I spent a bit of time crying into my goggles I was in so much pain um, just muscular pain and things and um, I think that mental resilience just it just kept me going and you know knowing that I've been I've had some bad times over the years like you were saying with Knowing who I was, the resilience of of having to to deal with not um, achieving maybe what I wanted to achieve because of injury and having to keep going as well, I think that certainly helped, I think, during the expedition. Before we get to the moment when you plant the Welsh flag <laughs> in the ground, well, you've mentioned why, how the idea came about, but it was quite a long way out, wasn't it? It was four, five years out from the initial concept that's a lot of time to think about it, a lot of time to train for it. Do you want to tell us some of the kind of training you had to do? Like, because you, you're dragging these what, 85 kilo sledges behind you, the fitness. What kind of things did you do along the beaches in Wales? Come on, Bex, you're, you're, the, you're the beach queen. You, you go for that. OK, yeah. So for the majority of the, of the um, planning and training of the expedition, I live 10 minutes from the beach, which is very handy. So um we basically spent a lot of time dragging old car tyres around the sand hills and the beaches of Wales, looking very weird. And over the four years, we've had some very interesting comments off the members of the public 
but yeah so we'd spend hours and hours literally you know five six hours just walking dragging these tires behind us it was you know very hard on the sand hills and incredibly boring as well as you can imagine but that was the kind of mental resilience that we needed for our our journey because we just spent you know 10 to 12 hours skiing in one direction heading into um into an abyss of of nothingness basically so we needed that kind of boredom training you know to help us mentally because I, I think the challenge as much as it was physically tough mentally it was probably harder so yeah so we spent hours doing that that was the main part of our training and then um, the dogs I used to double it up as a dog walk for my little I've got two little mini dash hounds which you wouldn't think would be able to cope with much walking but they're surprisingly fit um little dogs and they love the beach as well so yeah so I bring them with me and um they would have a great walk as well and uh yeah so it doubled up quite nicely for me and then we also spent some time skiing on the beaches as well. We had some old cross-country skis and we would ski. Um, there's a big hill called Merthamar Sand Dunes near near where we live. And um, it's like the biggest sand hill in Europe, I think. And we would ski up that and then ski down with weighted vests on. And it was really hard going, you know, as you can imagine. It was tough and hard going, but it, it definitely was invaluable for our training, uh, for our expedition. And In midlife, women do tend to take on these challenges. You know, there's swimmers, runners, triathletes. It's a big thing they do and, and also lots of other things they take on. But how do you get your head around dealing with hours of boredom? What would you advise, not just in your situation, but, you know, we, we also have to deal with quite a lot of family stuff going on. How do you get your head around that I'm actually okay with being bored I'm comfortable with being bored and because if I'm bored it means I've done everything that I've achieved in that that I need to do in that day if that makes sense so I always feel like I um I have to earn a bit of a sit down so it doesn't matter whether it's the housework or chopping logs or or whatever I just mean I always feel like I need to achieve my my rest time in in the in the evening and stuff otherwise I get a bit restless and, and things I think this used to do Bex's head in a little bit, but I've got quite a strong inner monologue. And I did try listening to music and audiobooks on, on, um, when we were skiing uh, as, a, as a distraction. I just found myself just so, especially the audiobook, so utterly distracted by the audiobook that I, I ended up like sort of not skiing and getting left behind and things. And then my earphone would fall out and I'd get really annoyed with it. So I spent a couple of days trying with it and then I thought, no, I can't do it. So I spent the, the remaining 50 days just with my own thoughts, which was sometimes a very bad thing, but some, but most of the time a really good thing um, because I just produced stories in my head, like, you know, things like um, what would I wear if I when we get invited to the Royal Box at Wimbledon and uh, <laughs> stuff like that, and what would I wear if we won a BAFTA and our documentary comes out and, and things like that, and, you know, and all sorts of really random stories and, and things. And I tell Bex at the end of the day what, uh, what what I'd been thinking about. She's like, you're nuts, honestly. She said, you, you know, you, you need to try and listen to music because what you're thinking about just isn't right. And, you know, we're never going to get a BAFTA. And... <laughs> well, I wouldn't be too sure about that. Never say never. But, um, we, you know, we talked a bit about the physical endurance and you must know your body so well, come to learn, like, you know, the extent of what you can do. And George, you've mentioned it about this sort of random marathon you just decided to do. But you have said that you were going through perimenopause too at the time and were dealing with, you know, that we talk about this a lot on the show, obviously, we're very open about our symptoms, we ask all our guests, but hot flushes in, in all that gear, dealing with all of that? It became a worry of mine when when we were training in Sweden, actually, and I'd had my first hot flush then. And it became very apparent that, that there wasn't much I could do about it because mine was sort of around my chest and, and, and neck. And um, and all we wanted to do is kind of strip off a little bit and let it let it vent. But it became quite obvious that when I'm on Antarctica and it's, it's going to be, you know, four times as cold, I can't do that. So if you get a hand out for any reason, you've got about between 10 and 20 seconds before the pain kicks in because it's so cold there. So I got a little bit sort of worried, uh, concerned about that, how I was going to, to, to going to deal with that, because you're trying not to sweat as well, because the sweat freezes on the inside of your equipment. So it was, it was quite a problem. But thankfully, during my perimenopause, I'm not somebody who, that gets lots of hot flushes. Um, I, I, I'm, they're most notable at night, if anything else. And, you know, you can deal with it at night. You know, you're safe in your, in your tent, in a sleeping bag or at home. Um, but there was one particular occasion, and, and I think it was just brought on by, it was the latter part of the of the expedition, and it was just brought on by ex absolute exhaustion, perimenopause. Um, you know, you can imagine the you know, hormonal imbalance 
all over the shop. And so there was one moment when uh, I had a hot flush in the back of the tent. And randomly, we th- I, I thought it was the cooker because we'd been having problems with the cooker the night before that was giving us like stinging eyes and tingling tons and, tongues and stuff. And as firefighters, that's like, right, okay, there's something wrong with the cooker, turn it off. You know, it just needed cleaning, that's all. And then it became apparent that I just got so, so hot and the tent is quite warm anyway. And I just stuck my head out the back of the tent where it, where it was cooler. And then I was like, I just can't cool down. And I just felt absolutely exhausted, like couldn't pick my arms up like in front of me. And then that, that passed after, after about 10, 15 minutes. And I sort of got dressed, got myself together a little bit. And then I went outside because it was my turn to go outside and sort the pulks out and, you know, take snow off the tent and, and stuff. And then I came back in and I just, and I'd, I'd spent about 15 minutes thinking there's something going on here. There's something really wrong. I, I've just got knots in my brain and I can't get rid of them. It was like big black knots rattling around my brain. And, um, and then I came back in and I said, I've got, to, I've got to, I've got to ring my partner. I've got to ring Bron. But it was just this like massive knot in my body that, that was saying, there's something not right here. You can't carry on because there's something not right. And then all this doubt came in, like I didn't deserve to be there. And so I had this like proper, um, what's it called, imposter syndrome kind of thing going on. And But I knew that it was menopause, you know, and the exhaustion and, and everything and the pressure cooker situation. I knew, I knew it was all that. So I knew it was temporary. And But I just I said, I've got to speak to my partner. And I spent sort of 10, 15 minutes speaking to Bron then. And she was like, you know, it's temporary. And she talked me around that day then. It, that was, it was really tough to get through because I had this proper imposter syndrome going on that I wasn't good enough and I shouldn't be there. And then talking myself out of it and then like dropping back into it and then talking myself out of it. And then as the week went, that week went on, then I got better and better and better. I've only got one regret and I, I wish I'd sorted out my HRT before I mean, you're presumed perimenopausal from the age of 45 onwards, aren't you? You know, 40. Oh, 40. Really? So, I mean, I've had the symptoms for the last two years, really, 18 months, two years. And I always thought, look, it's just too late for me to sort to start messing around with hormones and HRT this close to the expedition. Because, you know, if if I'm lucky, I'll fall into a routine with HRT and everything would be lovely. If I'm unlucky, it could make it 10 times worse. And I'll be out on the ice somewhere and everything has come crashing down on day one. I think that's the main learning, isn't it, from all our chats around HRT. Don't delay to sort sort your life. And what you've explained is a uniquely female experience. So you had to fundraise, uh, the two of you. This is quite gruelling, your fundraising for this journey to make the point that you wanted to make and to experience this and inspire other women. Did you encounter people not wanting to support this because you were women? We definitely feel like we were overlooked by some companies because we were females and probably not taken as seriously as a male team that would be doing the same thing. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the fundraising part of this was, quite frankly, the worst part Sorry, the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We're very pet friendly on this show. <laughs> it was the worst part of this whole experience, um, wasn't it, George? It was, oh, it, it tipped me over the edge pretty much. I almost had a bit of a breakdown, I think, towards the end of, uh, you know, just before we went on expedition, not, not knowing if we were going to get the funding. But yeah, we were certainly, I definitely feel like we were overlooked a few times for male teams or just not taken seriously. I guess you've had that in your life, though, haven't you, as female firefighters? Because there are hardly any female, especially frontline female firefighters. I think it is about 10% nationally, which is very few. And then uh, in my service, I think we're on 5% now of operational female firefighters. And I think, George, are you 3% in South Wales? Yeah, we've had a, we've had a sudden increase. But of course, percentages wise, it's not increased hugely. But there's positive action to tackle that, so to speak. So I've always been a big advocate that it must happen organically. I mean, I joined the service um, all those years ago under the sort of the banner of you only got this job because dot, dot, dot. I have not had that since, you know, but I spent the first four or five years of my career desperately trying to prove myself that I didn't get the job just because I was a woman and constantly trying to prove myself that uh, you know, I was good enough for the job, despite the fact that uh, colleagues I was working with had come through on the exact same recruitment process, but they weren't getting these comments. You only got this job because, and, and as you do when you when you're young, you're constantly trying to prove yourself, aren't you? And 
And then I just try to flip it in my brain and say, I just need to believe in myself. And if I believe in myself, then if I want to prove myself later with with other things, then that's great. That's my choice. So I I just thought to myself, I just need to believe in myself. And that's the message that we've carried through into the expedition. I wish I'd got there sooner. But then, you know, in a late 20-year-old joining a male-dominated arena, it's intimidating. And I feel that for all the new female recruits that are coming in now, still male-dominated. There's no absolutely no secret around that. But it can be intimidating walking into a room full of men. And when you're the only woman... The comments that you get from your male counterparts are, well, well, you know, we're not like that. You know, we're not that man that were there when you were joined and things. I said, okay, so let's flip it, always flip it and just say, how do you, how would you feel? Or how do you feel when you walk into a room full of women and you're the only man? You need to see yourself in that environment. You know, would you appreciate being called a male firewoman? Because we still get called female firemen. It's quite difficult and it's it's hard work, basically. I mean, the other reason as well is that we absolutely love our jobs and it is a brilliant job and a job that women can do. So I think that's the other thing is that we hope that we are promoting the fire service and, you know, our jobs in a really positive way as well. So we hope that that will come across. This journey had quite an effect on you physically. I remember reading you took something like 15 kilograms of cheese or something, but you you lost nearly two and a half stone or something as well. So how has it affected your midlife bodies coming back? What And what did, what happened on the journey? We had put on a bit of weight before we went as like a buffer because we knew that we would just physically, we couldn't eat as much food as we um, were burning um, calories wise. And also, Obviously, everything that we wanted to eat, we had to carry with us. So weight was a big issue for us as well when we were out there. So we took five and a half thousand calories of food a day to eat, which seems like, uh, you know, a lot, doesn't it? But we were probably burning more like eight thousand a day, I'd say, if not more. So we were always in a deficit. So, you know, after 53 days of that, that's where the, um, the weight loss came from. And for me, it was um, when we finished and we we saw ourselves in our first mirror that we had. Because obviously we hadn't looked at ourselves for 53 days. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock, really. I think my jaw dropped because years of sport, I've always been quite muscular and, you know, quite chunky. And I was suddenly not that person anymore at all. You know, I was really shocked at, at what I looked like. And um uh, I almost didn't recognise myself. Um, I couldn't believe it. And I think um, the effect on my body over the last, certainly over the last sort of five weeks now since we've been back, I think I'm definitely a lot weaker and, um, well, obviously skinnier. Kirstie and my partner had taken a video of us when we w- went out running the other day and I looked back at it and I thought, God, who's that person running? Like, this, you know, I was running off into the distance and I just did not recognise myself at all. It was, it was very strange and almost a little bit um um a little bit unnerving because um I feel like I'm not me at the moment I think I'm getting back to that point now but I feel like I'm I'm not me for a, for a while and um yeah you know I just I definitely feel that I'm definitely not as strong and still a little bit tired yeah now I'm in my 40s I think recovery is definitely something that um takes a lot longer Mentally, I still think I'm 25, but my body is definitely not that. You know, I thought, oh, a couple of weeks and I'll be straight back on it. But it's not. I think it's going to be months, really, before my body is fully recovered from from what we've done. And I think it's going to take a lot longer to, to restore. You can't do something like this without having the right people around you, can you? And the fact that you're you're both doing full-time jobs, you're both training for this, you're both... You know, that has an impact on your partners, on your family, on your friends. How did that work? And obviously, I'm assuming you both your partners, Kirsty and Brom, were super supportive. Or were they? Four years ago, you know, came back with this idea and then Brom was like, right, okay, something else in the pipeline. Yeah, because I've always had this sense of adventure and, and things. I've always wanted to go into the seven summits and, and, and things like that, you know. I mean, when you first come up with this idea and then you look at the price of it, you're like, oh, gosh, right, okay, this is going to take a lot to get this up and running. And then I think we call them the wags, wives and girlfriends. They don't seem to mind, to be fair. But um, And then as as it's got closer and closer and closer and, you know, some support started coming in and then it's suddenly a realisation, oh, this is actually happening. And and then it t- turned to, you know, quite early on that it turned from, okay, this is a, this seems like a bit of a pipe dream to, oh, my gosh, you are actually going to go and do this. So, I mean, Bron's been 100% supportive, um, probably not in the first 10 seconds, 
maybe not in the first few months, but yeah, definitely when the tide turned a little bit, she was 100% uh, supportive and we've not looked back really. We had to have that support because as you can imagine, you know, this is four years in the making and it was pretty much a full-time job on top of our already full-time jobs. So there was a lot of sacrifice from their end as well in in order for us to be able to have, have, have done this. Well, you were there at Christmas, weren't you? You missed Christmas and New Year with your families. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we left them on their own for three months, which is a long old time, really, for them to to deal with just general life, really, I think. I felt a lot of guilt now and again, I think, even though I still very much had my mind set on the end goal. There was definitely guilt that crept in every now and again, I think. Not that, you know, Kirsty was 100% supportive massively and very proud of both of us. The sacrifice of leave... Your annual leave is, is is spent with family and, and friends and things, but all our annual leave is chewed up with training. So we're either in Norway or Sweden for, with on all our annual leave as well. So that's quite a thing. That's true love, isn't it? So ITV have made, I've seen it, a rather fabulous documentary, which made me a bit tearful. It was just so amazing. So if anyone's listening and wants to see you on the continent doing your trip, then that documentary is out there for them to watch. But If you're uh, a woman of this age, the age we all are, listeners are, and we've got a little challenge, a little glimmer in our head of something we want to do, it could be a job, it could be a physical thing, but you're prevaricating, faffing, overthinking, what's your advice on taking that step and doing that thing? Believe in yourself and trust yourself that you can take that first step um, and don't be afraid to ask. There's the, there's the three things. Don't be afraid to ask for for advice. Never be too proud to ask for for advice. That shadow of a doubt. Often, if you take someone supportive, a friend or or family member with you to something, you know, like I really want to go to the gym, but I'm I feel too self conscious to go, um, or to make that first step, then you know, take take someone with you, and that helps to kind of break down those barriers that you may have, and then hopefully that it's something you can just continue to do on your own then. So um, yeah, but that self belief, which is difficult to find but that's that's something you just really need to believe yourself and not worry about whatever people think which is easier said than done I know that so um in all of this journey over many years was the actual reaching the pole was that the highlight and what happens when you get there how do you know you're there I'd get lost we'd both get lost we'd have no idea so we um in order to navigate we have a compass and um, a gps unit so we have sort of waypoints that we navigate from over the over the time that we're out there so at the South Pole, there's actually quite a lot of, of stuff going on. So you certainly know you're there. So, you know, we've seen nothing for the majority of our expedition. And then literally on the last day, um, about 20 kilometres out, we started seeing um, the tops of the roofs of the scientific buildings that are there, which was a pretty amazing feeling. You know, I felt really emotional. I think, you know, I, I shouted at George to come over because we, we travelled one behind each other because I was thinking... Am I seeing a mirage now? Because obviously we were so, you know, exhausted at this point. Or is that actually the South Pole Centre? George confirmed that it was. And, you know, we had a little hug and things. And, um, yeah, it was massively emotional. I had a few tears in my eyes, I think, um, even though we still had 20 kilometres to ski. But then they disappeared because we then started going downhill a bit and they disappeared. And then we didn't see them again until the last, um, I think it was about 11 kilometres to go. And then suddenly... You just saw everything, you know, this huge um, industrial building, which was a scientific base. Um, and then a few like loads of tents around some um, a massive kind of weather um, monitor, some satellites. It was really industrial up there, actually, quite um, surprisingly so. And then obviously, as we walked, you have to follow this certain this certain navigation around to get to the South Pole because it's all very um, regimented where you can go and things because there's a big runway there as well. We, we walked to um, the South Pole camp, which is the camp that we stayed at, which is just a little bit further out. And the people there met us, the expedition um, company met us there, um, one person. And he, you know, he congratulated us and said, well done. He said, but the South Pole is another one kilometre that way. And, you know, me and George are like, oh, my God, I'm not sure we're going to make it. <laughs> yeah, we were on our knees by this point. So we very, very slowly um, skied or dragged ourselves um, to the South Pole, but it's actually the G. So there's a massive sign. There's a picture of us against a massive sign. And that's the actual end of our journey. So that's the geographic South Pole. So we got there and had pictures. And I think the feeling, wasn't it, George, was just, um, you know, elation, relief as well, that we've actually made it. Joy, excitement. I was really almost uh, excited that I didn't have to ski anymore. I think after 53 days of being on those skis, 
and I was ready for a good meal and a couple of beers as well, I think. Um, and also, I think for both of us, you know, it'd been such a long journey. We'd been away from home for so long. It was almost like we are that much closer now to being able to get home and see our families and, and other halves and the dogs. Do you get flown out? I assume you get flown out. You get flown out, don't you? You don't have to do it all again backwards. <laughs> no, no. Good. <laughs> How did you feel, George, when you put that Welsh flag in there? Relief and exhaustion and disbelief as well. And a little bit of sadness, you know, elation and sadness as well, because, you know, four years in the planning and this was the last 30 seconds. And um, it just really put everything into perspective for me. But it was just the absolute joy of getting there and the hard work, you know, in the run up and actually getting there, you know, and touching the actual South Pole, you know, getting your head around the fact that you're actually upside down as well on the globe is a really weird concept. Um, it kind of freaks you out a little bit. When you're that tired, anything freaks you out a little bit, to be fair. Planting the Welsh flag in, you know, really, really brought it home. What was your reception? Well, we had a few receptions, actually, and not that anything was organised or anything. So the camp manager came out, uh, and that was our first reception. Is one guy going, congratulations, with his big mittens on, your finish is one kilometre that way. And, um, and then when we got to the pole, a couple of other people came out on their skidoos, and then a firefighter came out from the South Pole Centre, who'd been waiting for us. For the last few days, he'd been emailing the camp manager saying, are they coming? Are they coming? Because I want to really come out and meet them. The reception that we had then within the mess tent, um, there was another expedition there, but they were doing a, a driving a vehicle expedition kind of thing from coast to coast. And they said, we, you know, you, you're the only women out there and uh, we've been waiting up for you because we got in at half 11 at night, but it's full sunshine. So it doesn't feel like half 11 at night. And they've been waiting for us all afternoon to come in and they'd saved us a little bit of whiskey. Very, this very expensive whiskey, and neither of us drink whiskey. So we were like, mmm, lovely, mmm, lovely. <laughs> Ooh, don't, don't waste it. It's like £500 a bottle or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just so amazing to hear the stories. It's just, you're such an impressive duo, and I think you did achieve what you set out to achieve. You have proven that women are unstoppable and they can do anything. I urge all our listeners to watch the ITV documentary, Thank you so much, George and Bex, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, Lorraine, I think after that, I don't know, I feel like we can do anything. We can do this week's How to Win. We can get through it <laughs> because it is is about quizzes, isn't it? And having failed completely this season's geography quiz, didn't you? I did fail very badly. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, but we're going to take a different approach to quizzes this week um, in How to Win in Midlife because these are quizzes you can't get wrong because they're all about you. Yes, this is a helpful quiz. With some good psychology behind it. And it is all about me and I am my favourite subject. (laughs) Uh, We've sort of grown up doing quizzes, haven't we? We are that generation from Jackie Magazine onwards and all the ones I would commission for uh, Cosmo. Mm, Sexy ones, sexy ones. They're all the sexy ones, yeah. I mean, it's just been so much part of our DNA. Yeah, it has. But I suppose really what it what they're about and why people love doing them so much is it kind of does help us get a little bit of an understanding about ourselves, doesn't it? And it reminds ourselves of 
aspects of our personalities that we might be overlooking, but that how other people might see us. And it probably helps us make sense of the world a bit and our place in it. But did you ever cheat and turn the magazine upside down to read the answers and then pick the questions that give you the answer you want to be? No, I did not cheat, <laughs> Trish, because I am not Marion, your alter ego, sneaky, yes. sneaky, judgmental Marion, who'd have been worried about getting an answer that she didn't approve of. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I haven't done one for years, but I found this one, didn't I? In uh, uh, It's a quiz by the New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin, and she wrote a great book called The Happiness Project. I heard her on Annie McManus's podcast, which has got a trillion downloads, and I was really fascinated by what she was talking about and her particular quiz she's developed about personality types. So I WhatsApped you, didn't I? And I said, Trish, Trish, we have to do this quiz. Tell us about it. Yes. Well, it's called The Four Tendencies, and it's basically a personality framework designed to help you know yourself better, but also understand others. And... Um, Create the life you want, says Gretchen Rubin. And she sort of says that you're just going to find life easier. It's going to be easier to become happier, healthier, and more productive, more creative when you find the ways that work for you in the world. So that kind of made a lot of sense to me. I'm going to explain what the four tendencies are, and then we're going to see who is which one. So there's upholders. And an upholder would say, I do what others expect of me and what I expect from myself. That's the first one. The second one is the questioner, which is, I do what I think is best according to my judgment. If it doesn't make sense, I won't do it. Then there's the obliger. I do what I have to do. I don't want to let others down, but I may let myself down. And finally, there's the rebel. I do what I want in my own way. If you try to make me do something, even if I try to make myself do something, I'm less likely to do it. Thought you were going to say there was there was four tendencies: sort of sleepy, snoozy, shouty. Oh. <laughs> That's dwarfs, I think, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> no, it was really interesting actually reading this. Um, and we were going to guess what each other does, weren't we? Because yes. there's no right or wrong, and no one of these is better than the other. It's not better to be one or other. It's just a general type that you might slot into, which means you react in a different way from someone who's who's the other type. It doesn't mean one is better or less good, as it were. Uh, it's a bit like traitors, isn't it, Trish? Are you a faithful or a traitor? So are you an upholder or an obliger? Because I kind of guessed you were roughly in that ballpark. Which one did you think I was? You're definitely not an obliger. That's my work colleague. Yes. <laughs> my only work colleague. Your only work colleague. It's not very obliging. No, you're not an obliger. So I, I sort of ruled that out. But then I kind of thought the other ones you could possibly overlap a bit. But obviously, it's useful to understand what the other ones are, isn't it? Because then you can understand. So I'm I'm going to have you down as a questioner. You are right. Yes. Oh, good. good. I'm <laughs> glad I got it right. Hurrah. And it's really odd because you can sort of dismiss these things and think, oh, well, that's all absolutely rubbish. But actually, when I read it, and she's got quite a lot of great videos on her website, so you can watch videos of each of the types talking about how being that type affects them in, in their lives. And when I watched the video, I realised I was, and I absolutely was a questioner, because this is somewhat, I'm a journalist, so it's literally in my DNA to constantly ask questions. So I will do something in my life, and I will apply myself 100%, but only if it makes 100% sense to me. And in doing that, I will ask a thousand questions um, to make sure. I will go through a process that an obliger or an upholder or a rebel won't go through. So that marks that questioner out. It is a little bit exhausting and I can see why it might be a bit annoying for people. <laughs> people who work with you. Yes. <laughs> but it is an extremely useful personality trait because it means you do thoroughly look at something. Um, the upside of being a questioner is they tend to be the thinkers, the creative. They're very, very independent. They're really good on boundaries. They don't rely on other people to do things when they can do them themselves. The downside is they may not be a team player because if the team doesn't believe the thing is right, but they believe after all their questioning it is, then they won't engage with that team. They can be a bit of overthinker, although I'm not really an overthinker. But one thing that I found was really interesting and helpful for me is that the language around being a questioner can make other people defensive. So a lot of people don't understand why they're being questioned about things. So I think back in my career, and a lot of the times I would have said about things, but do we have to do it that way? Why are we all doing it this way? Why is the whole team deciding that this is the best way to do it? Have we thought of doing this? Have we tried this? Have we researched that? So I'm just asking questions, but other people are feeling 
criticized yes, for their choices yeah. of the way they're doing it. So that I can see is a little bit annoying. So she advised how you can flip it the other way. When you, you don't say, why are we doing it this way? You say, that's interesting. Um, can you explain to me why you chose to do that? So you're engaging in a different way. You're not saying, why are we doing it this way? Because I think this is better. You're, you're saying, I'm intrigued as to why you are doing it that way. And then it's more of a conversation. Um, it's not a controlling thing being a questioner so that you can control the outcome because actually questions are really great. If, you know, if someone explains to them why it's better to do it the other way, they will say yes immediately. They don't stick to their guns. They're not stubborn. That is all very true of you, I would say. Yeah, I've got you down, though, as an upholder. Are you an upholder? Bingo. Bingo. She got it right in one. Pass the celebratory biscuits. Exactly. Well, so upholders, there's a clue in the name. And this is the first point, which I just saw, oh my God, this is absolutely me. So I respond readily to outer and inner expectations. So it's like my own thought processes as well as kind of what's going on out there. And um, and apparently I wake up thinking, what's on the schedule and the to-do list uh, for today? I mean, I could have written that myself. That is exactly what I do when I wake up. You know, because I want to know what what expectations I have to fulfill today, either to work, to family, to friends, whatever. I I sort of really like to think about that because I don't want to let people down. Don't want to let myself down either. And this one, this is good. Love rules. You know me. I do love a rule, don't I? You do. And I will say, I don't know. What do I? I will wake up thinking, I wonder if I have to do all these things today in that order. Perhaps I could do them in the reverse order. Yes. Whereas I want the rules. I want to know the rules and I like to follow the rules of, of any given situation. But as a downside, that can go too far, according to Gretchen Rubin, because I can just be looking for almost rules beyond rules, as it would were. It be inflexible, Trish. We call it fizzy, don't we? We when say get fizzy out when, yeah. Yeah, my comfort yeah. The funny thing, of course, is that Neil, I'm married to someone who is just goes out of his way to break rules, break the rules, break the rules, everything. He's the rebel, Trish. I feel, oh, isn't I think he? He, he is. just won't do anything his way. He wants to do it his way. I think I've married exactly that man as well. You have. We've both got one of those. And then the other upsides of being an upholder, you've got a strong instinct for self-preservation, which I think I do. It helps me protect me from burnout and doing too much. So I'm quite good at sort of stepping back and thinking about myself and what I need. And then this is another one. You'll love this. A bit like the rules. Love habits. I've got so many habits. I mean, oh, it used to be a running joke at work in the office that, oh, it's three o'clock, Trish's cup of tea and a square of dark chocolate to this day, still still doing that. It's just like, I like have my habits. I have the things at certain times and I like to tick them off, but it makes me a little bit inflexible and rigid again. So I kind of feel like I learned quite a lot about myself. I learned that the relentless questioning is not a problem. No. Because <laughs> it is a self-preservation thing as well. It's a kind of, I will do this if I know all the facts about it, but it's the way you do it, which is really actually... In the last few weeks since I did the test, I've actually started to, to ask in a different way. And I mean, you know, I do a lot of consulting and I'm in meetings, so I don't say, why are you doing it that way in that blunt way I might have done before? I say, well, that's really interesting. Tell me why you thought that that was the best way to do it. Have you maybe looked at other ways? What else do we do we know about it? So it's just about reframing it, isn't it? I think knowing the tendency can help you set up situations so that you get what you need and everybody yes. achieves their aims. You can make better decisions, meet deadlines, uh, meet the promises to yourself. Now, if you want more information on Gretchen, her podcast, book and the quiz, which is on her website, go to Gretchen, G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N, Rubin, R-U-B-I-N dot com. So if we were going to do a magazine quiz now, what, what do you think we might write? Would it be how foggy is your brain? Is your pet a psychopath? Where are you on the brain fog scale? Yeah, from one to 10. Yes, that sort of thing. Those are probably the quizzes um, that we do now. But if you really love a quiz, um, I found a website called Queendom, which has both science-based ones and fun ones. So I have to say, a bit of a wormhole. You start, you, you get going and, oh my goodness, you can't. Uh, everything from your personal hygiene test to dysfunctional families. Are you annoying? an annoying influencer, Lorraine? That's another one. I am an annoying influencer. <laughs> I know the answer to that question. Right, noodly doodle time. Special one this week. 
It's a one-day-themed quick little chat because we thought we can't not do this, can we? Because, I mean, we've all been watching it. Everyone I know has been watching it. Everyone's got different opinions. So I thought it would be good to kind of share our opinions on one day, one of our favourite books by David Nichols. We know the ending. Why am I surprised that the ending is the ending? That's what I want to know, Lorraine. I mean, it's marking the day is uh, in from July 1988, and it came out in 2009, I think. The book, yeah. Um, I don't know a person that wasn't reading it at the time, and I was trying to explain it to my husband. Everybody was reading it wherever you look, so that's what's nostalgic about it for me. It's something that was really close to our hearts because we were all reading it mm. at the same time. And as you say, the ending is quite dramatic. I was very upset about it. Um, and it's a David Nichols book. But the thing I loved about it is not just the nostalgia, but the sense of hope. It really captured over 14 episodes, that real sense of hope that you have when you're young, when you're in your early 20s, where everything seems possible, no matter what else is going on. And the hope is tied to the music. So there's a phenomenal one day playlist on uh, Spotify. And throughout that music, I could write under each of those songs, a pivotal point of my life, what was happening. It was my memories tied to the hope, tied to the music. And I thought that's really rare for both a book and a program to do that. And it was just, it's just about how savage fate is, isn't it? (laughs) And the power of kind of what if, and that lovely, Tess the Durbervilles is one of my favourite books of all time. Yeah. I'm a huge Hardy fan. And that lovely quote about the sly and unseen day of your death and I just thought god it's what one day has done for me yes tied every bit of my hopeful part of life together obviously I had a bit of the old melancholy on there do you have the death maths with yeah, because, like, oh, hang on to, spoiler alert to have that feeling now in midlife you can't uh, really have it because the future doesn't stretch ahead of you in the same yes way yeah. without being maudlin about it it just doesn't so any decision you make now you can't mess it up and think oh well a few years I'll do a different thing it's so much more heavy now, isn't it? And I just love that sense of hope. Aww. Carried it around with me all day after watching, binge-watched I did. I binge-watched, you know, because you know me, being an upholder and a rule a follower, I normally watch one thing a week. <laughs> so I'm not a binger. I know your habits, Trish, I binged, yeah. I binged, I definitely binged this. I couldn't not binge it. I think there's something about that little 25-minute format. There's something, that, the way that they do, that they filmed that, the way that they filmed normal people, they had a very similar kind of, vibe and rhythm that just kind of you know lured you into it I thought both the lead characters were brilliant they were just adorable there were bits of times where I just really didn't like the characters but then I really liked them and you always fall in and out of love with the characters I think throughout the whole uh, 14 episodes it was funny I think the attention to detail the styling this is the nostalgia noodle bit, isn't it? It's like seeing a copy of Primal Screams, Screamer Delica in Dexter's teenage bedroom or childhood bedroom. Just so much stuff. My friend Claire had one of the dresses that she was wearing in one of the oh, episodes yeah, at bet. the time. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. I can imagine. And the Nokia phone box. And we were talking, weren't we, the other day about the, um, I think it was Quaglino's, the Conran restaurant, where they had that disastrous dinner. But it was like, oh, my God. How many times we walked down those stairs working in London in in that time. And those, I have to say, the kind of media parties around the whole, um, the terrible TV show. Anyway, I do have some friends who didn't really like it. The TV reviewers seem to absolutely love it. It was five stars everywhere. I think I would have given it four. David Nichols wrote episode 13 himself. I think that was the reason it it worked so well, because the man who wrote the book was so heavily involved. Yeah. And I and I tell you what it also brought home was just this sense of writing and how powerful writing mm. is, how it captures the culture of the moment. And all this talk now of funding maths and making us all do maths and science in schools and no talk of, you know, fund the writing, teach children yeah. how to write, because that was history. That was a piece of history from nineteen eighty eight onwards and it was really captured historically really really well and such a cultural moment that we're all talking about the whole nation is talking about and that comes from great writing Trish doesn't it It does and anyway they filmed some of it round the corner from me that was exciting well Trish I'm slightly exhausted by today's show I've learned about your dressing I've been to the Antarctic with the fire angels I've found out you're a little upholder. It's been quite a roller coaster, hasn't it? I've been thinking about one day again, which brought all my emotions back. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 